Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. In 2020, events have again shone a light on inequalities across the globe, and Australia is not an exception. 20 years on from the reconciliation walks of the year 2000, this nation's journey towards a more just, equitable and reconciled identity still has a long way to go. With that in mind, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to the Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people today. Hello there. Welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and the Asia-Pacific. Policy Forum Pod is brought to you by policyforum.net, based at the Crawford School of Public Policy. Please go check them out at crawford.anu.edu. Now, this might come as a surprise to you, but I am not Martin Pierce. My name is Kim Cunio, and I'm the head of the School of Music here at the ANU. And it's my pleasure to be with you for a few episodes, some with my co-host, Denise Ferris, from the School of Art and Design, and some by myself. Now, regular Policy Forum pod listeners would know that we love the occasional not-so-hostile takeover. Last month, Dr. Anna Gareta Hunter took over as Queen of the Castle for two weeks, leading discussions on the future of food and our healthcare system in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. Not wanting to be outdone, I've launched my own little coup d'etat, with my friend Denise Ferris, and will be your guest host for the next few weeks. In truth, this is more a temporary cabinet reshuffle, with your regular host Martin Pierce taking charge of the democracy sausage hotplate, while Mark Kenny takes a well-deserved break. With new episodes out Monday and Thursday evenings, Democracy Sausage is your twice-weekly fry-up of politics and public affairs. If you haven't already made, made sure you that you're going to check it out, do. It's available wherever you get your favourite shows from. So that said, it's my pleasure to be thinking about what we're doing today. And we have a topic, actually two topics in one. We're thinking about two really big ideas with a really wonderful panel of guests. The first idea is that one that is almost impossible to say and even harder to define. How do we decolonize in these public spaces, in policy, in forums, in universities? So that's a big topic to think about. And the second one is trans or interdisciplinarity. And we're looking at these two together because the fabulous guests I have on today are going to tell us that these two are linked and that to do one, you really need to do the other. And you need to be thinking about the ways in which there can be integration between these ideas. So now it's time to introduce our wonderful guests. Our first guest is Kate Harridan. Kate is a PhD scholar at the ANU Fenner School, but Kate is much more than this. She's an advocate of multidisciplinary and transdisciplinary research. She's done previous work from in slums. Uh, she's done work in environmentalism. She's looked at the black box of inter-household water use. She's doing a terrific PhD at Fenno at the moment, again looking at water. But she's been a scientist. She's been a thinker. She's been a speaker. And she's a proud Wiradjuri woman. Kate, welcome to the podcast. Yudamurang. Yamadamurang. G'day. How are you? Lovely to hear your voice. And now I'm going to introduce Jess before we keep going. Uh, our next guest is Dr. Jessica Weir, Senior Research Fellow at Western Sydney University. Jess investigates human environmental relations, justice, societal norms and public sector governance. Her research practice is fundamentally informed by over two decades of collaboration with Indigenous peoples, especially in Southeast and Western Australia. She works as an ally within a decolonial ethic and has done a lot of work on both fire and water. Welcome to you, Jess. Hi, Kim. It's great to be here. Well, can I say we've been formal and I've behaved myself for this opening because I have a feeling, I have a feeling the three of us are going to have a really great time. And the reason is, I must disclose, that we know each other. This is not the first time we've met because we've been thinking about these issues before. And I think as the podcast goes on, you realise just how well we do know each other. But I'm going to start pretending that I can be formal to you, Kate. I'd like you to explain your current research and your past research, if you can, and how this notion of multidisciplinarity is in your work and really your, your greater sense of being. 
Uh, thanks for the curly question, Kim. Much appreciated. The work I'm currently doing is quite definitely multidisciplinary. I'm looking at how you can alter the form and function of stormwater channels by incorporating Indigenous science values and practices. And you can't really do this without looking at pretty much everything. So nominally, it's a hydrology project, but really there's a whole lot of social science in there, lots of... Um, What's STS? It's science. Science and technology studies. Science and technology studies. I love some of that STS stuff. There's some really good work about power in that. But um, yeah, you just I just don't think that you can work on something, well, anything. I was going to say something like water, but you can't really work on anything without realizing that it's connected to something else. Nothing happens in a vacuum or in an in in absence of anything else. And I, I also have a bit of a thing for transdisciplinary work, which this is a little bit, but I did say she's mentioned some previous work on household water use, and I really, really, really needed non-academics to be involved in that. And people who had no uh, sectorial training hadn't been raised to think about the world in a certain um, academic light. And I found that that was really helpful for me understanding in a much more deeper and clearer way how people value and use water and how it's just out of whack with the way institutional managers view it. But in terms of that being in my being, I just can't imagine, I can't imagine looking at one thing in a vacuum. Nothing exists in a vacuum. And um, I've always felt this, even though we didn't really formally become aware of our Indigenous background until I was relatively mature, I guess. But it's always been in my person. Like I, when I walk around, I look around, I can never see just the wind blowing or just the water flowing or it always happens in concert with something else. And I think that's something that uh, a lot of academic fields, not just plain old science, miss is that capacity to see. What do you think, Jess, beyond what they're trained to see? Yeah, I mean, um, absolutely. Everything's connected and um, following those connections can really be is is really challenged by the different disciplines. Um, you sort of uh, get held up, you know, mm. at, at a point, you know. And we we both work on environmental issues, you know, which are often presumed to be separate to social social issues. Oh, and they're so not. <laughs> and so so um, it's. It's chaos, really, to only look at the environment without also looking at at social and political and cultural matters. And then also it's crazy to look at social, cultural and political matters without considering environmental matters. And that doesn't mean that it's an undifferentiated mess, um, but just that instead of um, hiving off categories to examine them, you look instead at relationships. You know, what's what's a strong relationship? Like, you know, water is the source of all life. That's a strong, That's relation- strong relationship. <laughs> That's a strong relationship. Um, whereas, you know, um, perhaps if one type of tree or grass went extinct, it's it's a loss, but certainly the world will continue. You know what I mean? It's yeah. not like losing water. You take water, if you take water out of the Murray-Darling Basin, we all see what happens. It's no good. And yet, um, and yet we can't foreground the importance of water uh, the way we would like to because of how it's caught up in all these disciplinary um, silos, and then that's also reflected in the legislation yep. and the and the institutions. And everyone's looking to connect. We need to connect this triple bottom line, and we need to, you know, do this integrated catchment management thinking. So there's lots of approaches to try and address. The disciplines, but they, the, the silos created by the disciplines, but they, they are so powerful that the, the connected thinking is really, is really, really struggles. It does. And I was actually just, um, speaking to a group this morning and I was saying a lot of the same sort of stuff that I've been saying for 20 years is that we need to incorporate water in a more holistic way. We need to scrap this notion of stormwater as a waste. And someone asked me a question at the end of the presentation, you know, these old days are all very good and stuff, but how do you keep going? Like how do you, in the face of such obstinance and and um, unwillingness to, to think about new ideas, how do you keep going? And I said, you just got to get up and keep bashing. You got to just keep getting up and having to go and saying what you think. And if you say it long enough and you have good evidence and good arguments behind you, what I've seen in, in the last 20 years is that people 
start to come around and they start to realise you can't just look at stormwater as one portion of the water flow. Stormwater is part of the larger water cycle and when they realise it, start thinking about water as part of the larger, sorry, stormwater as part of the larger water cycle, they realise that you're losing, in, in air quotes, a lot of water that we could be using. So that by, losing that, by, by losing that connection that all water is in fact the same and all water is needed, we've been able to hive off a portion of water as waste no one touches it, and then suddenly water becomes this massive commodity. Yes. And that's, and that's so a policy I, implication, right? I think what – let me see if I understand you right. I think what you're saying is when we when we think about water in dis- discrete, separate ways – Water is like, for industry, for agriculture, for um, household use. But yet when we carve it up like that, yeah. Yeah, and then when we carve it up like that, um, it's not connected to – not only is it not connected to its other – it's other water relationships, but nor is it connected to ecologies, histories, cultures, laws, and so on. And it's that that making a water a, a discrete, uh, quantifiable Commodity. thing, um, which might make us feel powerful. We think, oh, we'll move the water here and we'll do this. But actually, it's the water that's got the power yeah. and it... Um, we we see this in the Murray Darling Basin, and and we are seeing ch- um, changes. We are slowly but surely, yeah, yeah, yeah. So th- like the the switch to um, diversion limits in mm-hmm. the Murray Darling Basin is now recognizing uh, that there needs to be you know a sustainable flow, and there's things like environmental water, and so you can see how the the different thinking around water um, with the environmental flows um, is evident when when people go, oh, there's not enough water, we won't do any environmental flows this year. And it's like... Well, We're still going <laughs> to irrigate. <laughs> it's like, well, the thing is, the environmental flow isn't another list. The environment isn't another user. That's right, the-, the environment's not carved off in that in that <laughs> industry demarcation, right? Yeah, the, vi- the, the the environment is the water. That's right, but somehow it doesn't get any water. <laughs> and if the environment is okay, then we can do irrigation and we can do all these other things. But if you think, oh, no, there's not enough water for the environment this year, I mean, that's crazy. It's crazy. It's crazy. It reminds me of what you said. Tell that story about your... Indigenous colleague. So that's my personal journey on how I learnt the river. I think it's a really powerful quote notion. Yeah, yeah, how the river comes first because I was I went into do this is in 2003 at the start of the millennial drought and I went in to do um, a sort of a social justice PhD um, with Indigenous um, people from along the Murray River and I was thinking, oh, well, this, this, there'll be a lot of stuff about rights and... Um, Water rights, and actually the elders taught me there are no rights from a dead river. It doesn't matter Indigenous rights, irrigation rights. Cultural flows. Environmental flows. If the river, (laughs) if the river's no good, you know, we're all losing. And so what they do, what they taught me is to foreground country and, and all else comes from that. And then those so-called motherhood statements, uh, like the river and the people are one and the river is life, that's actually really common. That is really intelligent, scientific statements. And from from an Indigenous person's perspective is actually not a motherhood statement. Like I feel part of the country. When I walk on the side of that Murrumbidgee River, I feel my feet flatten and deepen and sink into the soil like they don't anywhere else in this country. Like I have a physical, visceral response to that river. That's extraordinary. And to me, that means that we are country. You can't divide me from country and you can't divide country from me. That's extraordinary. I, I want to, to, to stop us for a second because I just want you to say that again, Kate. It's such a, it's such a profound teaching for us all. Could you just tell, tell us that again? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I walk along the side of the Murrumbidgee and on, on my country, not on someone else's. And so my forebears come from the rock around Wagga and it's particularly pronounced in that part of the world. But I feel when I walk and I spend a lot of time in bare feet, that when I stand on the sand or the banks of the Murrumbidgee, 
my feet flatten so I, they get wider on the surface and they sink deeper into the ground and I can feel the connection with country. And when I look across, you can hear it in my voice, when I look across the river and I see the banks, I hear the river screaming in pain and it makes me want to cry. Kate, I want to thank you for saying that statement because all of us who are listening, particularly those of us who don't have that, well, we don't feel we've got access to that deep connection I think we can take stock in something you said to me this time last week and, and also to Jess, which is about the fact that, you know, we are always on Aboriginal land. Could you tell us that, please? Yeah, well, that, this is, comes from the idea that when people are talking about Indigenous stuff or engaging in Indigenous studies or something, they go, now, when we get out on country, we'll do something. And it's like, sorry, no matter where you are, whether you're in a brick building or a yurt or buried under snow, you are always... On country, I can be sitting in this building, an old Canberra house. I'm on the second second floor up. I'm still on country. And country is still in me. So you can always learn from country. You don't have to actually go out to country because when people talk about going on country, what they're really saying is we're going to go to the bush, right? And it's often non-Indigenous people, and I think that's what they're saying is we're going bush. We're going to see the real Indigenous person. Real Indigenous people sit here in offices as well. So you you are always on country. It is not, it is not a bushy piece of landscape removed from an urban environment. And country. our our university campuses, sorry to interrupt. No, you're right. Are on country as well. Absolutely, everything is always on country. Just because you've put some concrete or you've ripped a big hole or you've changed the direction of a river, you are always on country. And country teaches us all the time. Country teaches us that everything's connected all the time, and that's and that's why the trans and this this is what brings us to to the the link between focusing on connections rather than separations and also listening to Indigenous people and country. And I just want to come back to a point that um, Jess made earlier about its relationships. That is actually other than country pretty much the fundamental thing of Indigenous communities. It's the nature of the relationships and it's not just relationships between you and me or Jess and Kim or whatever, between between human beings. It's the relationship between everything on country, sentient or otherwise. A rock is as important and valuable as a kangaroo. They all have a place, they all have a value and we can all learn something from them. So if you only look at the kangaroo, you miss the value of the rock. You miss what the rock teaches you. Stability, slowness, you know what I mean? Yes, I think so. Everything has a place and everything is in relation to each other. And, and there's also space in those relationships for those of what we don't yet know because they will have yeah. a relationship. Yeah. And so if you were to do water studies in a transdisciplinary way, which is what you're doing, you follow what are the important relationships rather than narrowing down on the particular hydrology of that stormwater right. stream, which is not to say that the hydrology isn't important. No, the hydrology is important, but it's only important in the context of all the other relationships that are happening around it. It's not important on its own. So tell me, like, tell me about that. Why is it, so what would you learn about that? What have you learned about your hydrology of your stormwater that links into other important I've learned that, um, not learned, I can't say I've learned, but I have been, again, deeply impressed about just how much people are connected to their waterways and all the stuff connected to those waterways. So there was a site down near the Cotter Road Bridge that used to be treed, had a grassy bank, had a bifurcated, so the stream went in two ways, there was a little bit of a dead end and there was a little bit of a refall and... It housed, amongst other things, a very active and healthy neck lizard, uh, sorry, water lizard community. The government, in their instant wisdom, wants to fix the water quality coming the water quality from waterways in Canberra. So they choose to focus on just nitrates, phosphates, and turbidities because apparently that's the only thing that measures river health. Uh, they knocked down this grassed, more than grassed, it was highly vegetated, natural reach of a stream and put in three horrendously ugly and very concrete and rock-based gabon riffles. 
to because they were what they were trying to resolve there was increased to, was high levels of turbidity. What they actually did was didn't make any difference to turbidity whatsoever according to the results that I've been collecting. In fact, sometimes have made it worse. But they've had a local extinction of a very important species, the the, the lizards and all the other animals that we can't see. And all the trees that were there, all gone, now replaced by highly stylized, formalized, concrete bedded, you know, like concrete embedded trees and grasses and stuff. <laughs> and the locals hate it. Right. So, because it doesn't hold the values that they hold. It's become, it's gone from somewhere where you can feel and see nature, however you wish to choose to define nature, to somewhere where you can only see the hands of humans. Mm. And they hate it and it doesn't work. You know, it's that kind of thing. I'm not sure. How, I feel like I've answered your question, but in a very sort of oblique way. Well, no, you didn't answer my question, <laughs> but you told me a really interesting story, which um, <laughs> which is, uh, you know, the nitrates, the phosphates and the turbidity. I mean, this is, this is what I discovered. So in- I guess this is what I'm trying to say is that <laughs> the powers that be that have decided that in Canberra what we need to care about when it comes to managing our waterways is the levels of nitrate, phosphate and turbidity. My question is... Is that really what makes a river or a waterway mm. and is it what makes them healthy? No, it's not. It's the whole range of other connections and relationships and interactions that are going on. It's the capacity for that river to be able to do channel bank storage. It's the capacity for that site, for that reach to be able to maintain a 30-animal 30, a 30 strong population of, of, of water lizards. And we are seeing that in our, in our changing water land use, uh, water use in, in Canberra. Like I've seen storm... Tr- Stormwater drains turned into wetlands in my suburbs. Yep, yep. So. Some suburbs are, but but there is a cost to that because in that same program where you got the very nice wetland that may or may not work, you've also got the program that's put in that riffle that has created a local extinction of a species that is valued widely in the community, and not, and not just valued by the human beings, but the ducks and the mosquitoes yeah. and all the stuff that. Yeah revolves around the way the lizard – I have a bit of a thing for lizards or Wiradjuri or Guga, a, a, a Goanna. So lizards are important. But to come back to the interdisciplinarity, the so what I struggled with um, – not what I struggled with, let me say this again. Um, coming back to the interdisciplinarity, where I um, – some things have been measured and valued and and are being responded to – in a certain way, but other things have not been measured and valued. And and also not everything can be measured nor should be measured. You know, there are things that tra- – many things that tra- transcend measurement that of that are of immense – Immense value. Immense value, the serenity and the peace of, of sitting near water, the joy of of learning to swim in, in water, you know, in natural water bodies. Which is a dog's frolic in the channels and stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you can't put a price on um, that. Not even Visa card can. Yeah, and so bringing it back to um, – for transdisciplinary thinking, we need we need the disciplinary expertise, but it needs to be within a dis, within a within transdisciplinary thinking. Um, so so you have someone with disciplinary expertise, say in hydrology, but what they are able to do is they're also taught to have um, to understand. Um, to work beyond boundaries and work with scholars in other disciplines and also in transdisciplinary methods. I don't understand why people think it's so hard to work across a discipline. I really don't understand. As someone who's got degrees across the disciplines, they're really not that far apart. What it really is, what what, what puts them apart is the codes and 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 informal um, cultures of those disciplines. It's not the disciplines, it's not the disciplinarity itself is um, at, at, at other, disciplinary doesn't put disciplines, doesn't pit discipline against discipline. It's the people who work within those disciplinarities that does that pitting. Yes, 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 absolutely, yeah, because There's because there are... There's within each discipline to yeah. talk and work with other disciplines. And when you look at how disciplines were developed, they came because some big thing happened, like hydrology is a part of geography. Ecology comes from geography. Disciplines got big because new stuff came, so enough people were doing stuff that they went, okay, let's call this something and do that. So there's actually quite a lot of, again, the word, interrelationships and interconnections within disciplines, but it's people that are stupid. Well, look, I'm so glad you raised geography because I'm a geographer and I'm 
Our you know, part of the renaissance of geography. And, yes, everything is geography. Everything is geography. And geography works really well with Indigenous Absolutely. knowledges and priorities because it they brings are the first people, people and environment together. <laughs> yeah. So we need to just all get back to our geography roots. I'm, I'm going to be a timekeeper <laughs> and say I think we're about to have some oranges because we've had a pretty good talk. I'm about to have some oranges. Which is it's half time. But I just want to say what a discussion. I'm just loving listening to both of you because we've already covered all the questions I had in the first half so naturally because, Kate and Jess, what you've been able to say is that it's not just something that comes. It's something that we have to work on. We have to have a perceptual quality to to see what is there and then we have to trust that we already have that training within our discipline and that we can then go beyond it and do this work that needs to be done. So I want to plant a seed for when we come back from our ad break which is I want us to think about what we can do within the university sector. Here we are all in this sort of university place and to think about collaborative spaces for Indigenous and non-Indigenous people. So let's take a break. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. Welcome back to Policy Foreign Pod, the podcast for you guys who want to dig deeper into the policy challenges facing Australia and the Asia-Pacific. This is Kim Cunio. I'm your substitute Martin Pierce for this week, and next week you'll hear me with Head of School of the School of Art and Design, Denise Ferris. We've got Kate Harridan, Jessica Weir, and boy, is it a good conversation. So Kate and Jess, we were getting really into interdisciplinarity before, but I've got this question. What would you like to see happen to universities to to better reflect what you've both been talking about so beautifully? I'm going to jump right in first because I know exactly what I want. I want to have a university run by and for Indigenous people. Here, here. So I am currently also a student at the Charles Sturt University and I'm doing a graduate diploma or something something in um, Wiradjuri language, culture and heritage. It's run as sovereign space by Indigenous people, by, by, by in fact, Wiradjuri people, for Wiradjuri people, and it is fantastic. And I think that if we were able to have – so I was a bit I was a bit shallow in my ambition in asking for a, a, an Indigenous tertiary institution for Indigenous people, but I can actually envisage uh, cradle-to-grave education because they're already talking about it. CSU so may be setting up a Wiradjuri um, childcare centre, early childcare centre, and then that, what's the next step after that? Wiradjuri school. And then we all go to Wiradjuri uni together. Marambangbalang. That's a bit deadly. That's, that would be my ideal aspiration. That is great. <laughs> Jess, how do, you resp- how, do you, how do you go after that? I'm really wondering. What about the, <laughs> what about the, the descendants of the colonial invaders and others? Where, where do we fit into all this? You've got, your own, you've got your whole own academic system already. Hands off, sunshine. <laughs> <laughs> but we, I mean. I've got two really words for you, Indigenous- Jess. Indigenous-led and co-design. How would you respond to those, those notions in a university setting? Um, there are many examples of it happening now in Australia, which is very exciting, and, and particularly with there's a really, there's a big ge- generation of Indigenous scholars coming through. There really is. There's going to be a little bit of a tidal wave soon, I think. It's great. And um, I'm, ba- I'm based at Western Sydney Uni and ANU, um, and... At Western Sydney, we have an Elders Council. We have a Deputy VC, Indigenous. Um, we have a range of um, uh, policies and specific programs and things. It's about – so it comes down to – literally comes down to power sharing. And, Absolutely. And people – that's often um, – can be hard for people to understand or it might be confronting, but it literally is if you want to make the space more Indigenous, Indigenous-led and co-designed, then you have to share power and resources. So and that stop employing money, old white men. 
that's money that's uh, you have to share power and resources so that's money um to do activities that's it's a also- space it's about office spaces access to labs whose work gets priority when funding cuts like we've happened now you know yes it's about being in decision making positions um it's about uh, what methods are considered appropriate, what outcomes are considered appropriate. How you go through the ethics process, what is an appropriate ethics process. There is a lot to change in the university system. So let's talk about... Um, let's look at some of the positive stuff we're doing. <gasps> hey? <laughs> so some of the great stuff that's happening are the yarning circles. Yeah, there's a few yarning circles going around. We have one at, at Fenner School at the ANU um, and we've actually consciously opened the circle up to Indigenous and non-Indigenous scholars because we want um, the non-Indigenous scholars to feel comfortable to ask questions in what we know is a challenging space. We want them to feel safe to do that and to ask the, for want of a better way of expressing it, the stupid questions in that safe space before they hit a community, mm. uh, enter a community, <laughs> a more, <laughs> more polite, less violent language, before they enter a community. Um and we try in that circle to really use a lot of Indigenous written materials, although we're actually using your paper next month. Oh, how lovely. Thank you. <laughs> so the reason why – so Jess recently um, co-authored a paper with a few other non-Indigenous academics and what they wrote about was their experiences as non-Indigenous PhD scholars trying to work in an Indigenous space. Um, and so we have a lot of non-Indigenous scholars who want to work in Indigenous space in the Fenner Circle, in fact, in this university. And for them to be able to see and feel someone else's experience, preferably at the beginning of their PhD rather than at the end, would be really, really handy Um and good for them to know that they're not the first person to go through that process. Yeah, because most of the, as you said, most of the people in the universities are are non-Indigenous. Most of the people in Indigenous studies and working with Indigenous communities are non-Indigenous. And so once you once you understand, okay, Indigenous-led, Indigenous co-designed, what happens next? Indigenous-centred. And in that paper, we reflected on how we thought we were doing maybe doing okay with our PhDs. But then when we really, you know, as after finishing the PhDs, we sort of reflected and went, you know, that was a really unequal exchange. You know, we the university got all this yeah. um, and we got, you know, our PhDs and there was no opportunity for us to give back to the Indigenous community to say, okay, thanks and now I'd like to work for you for a year and you know, make sure this has research impact as well as, you know, centre your priorities rather than the thesis. Um, and, you know, there's no sort of two-way thing like um, monies for Indigenous elders to come and speak side by side with the PhD researcher at the conference or, you know. Or Which is just... really frustrating. Get back to that ethics. You know, in ethics, you're not allowed to offer money. You know, under the ANU ethics protocol, they get upset if you say, well, I want to pay the elder for participating or for leading a circle. They go, oh, that's a conflict of interest. Well, maybe in this white academic space it's a conflict of interest. But out there in the field where we're working, it's actually the way shit is done. Well, I mean, the problem is that um, you're having people with wages meeting up with people who are unwaged and and it's like they're expected to volunteer their time to everyone who comes through who's – my money came, my PhD – um, stipend came from comes from public money. Yeah, love the so taxpayers comes, of it Australia. Comes out, it comes out of the Australian continent, you know. So, yeah, why am I sitting there with a salary and not the the person, the other person who's as know? critical to your work as you are? Yeah. In fact, can't do your work without them sometimes, right? Yeah. Well, my moment is to say you're here on Policy Forum Pod. Two great guests, Kate Harrod and Jess Weir, and I think you guys have just actually set an incision into the university system, and it's one that's well needed. So I've got one quick question and then we'll go on to something big. One of those funny words we hear a lot is Indigenous allyship. Could you just speak to that, Kate and Jess? What do you think it means and are there problems in it? Okay, thank you. Well, I try to um, operate as uh, within a decolonial ethic, which is always learning and also um, always making mistakes. <laughs> um, She's not alone, people. <laughs> Oh, the nervous laughter, um, which is good. You know, we, I need to be unsettled. I need to be uncomfortable. I need to be unsure because there needs to be change. And every, I'm constantly learning. Oh, 
bright, you know. So they'll, I will have another light bulb, you know, even though I've been collaborating with Indigenous people um, for a long time now, a couple of decades, um, I'm still learning all the time and having light bulb moments and thinking, what, oh, thank you for your generosity <laughs> Whatever came before, <laughs> but now I get that bit. Thank you. Um, it's so one of the problems in this space is um, is people who take who are more like opportunists, um, and it, it's called in Indigenous studies. It's called extractive research relationships. Um, and so that the, you extract what you need from the Indigenous person or community or homelands uh, for your research purposes. Um, and so it's about moving on from extractive models and moving into res- reciprocity and ideally um, Indigenous leadership rather than partnership. So And, and that reciprocity, whatever that word is, the, the exchanging of... Um, knowledge and favours is not just the um, research slash alleged expert coming in and saying, I will give you the benefit of my knowledge. There's a really great paper, the R word. Was that the name oh, of the paper? Yes. And then there's it's one of my favourite lines, can you fix a generator? If you've got no practical skills, you've got no place in those communities. It's not just your academic – in fact, the last thing they often want is your academic expertise. You have to fight – you have to show your value before you can demonstrate your expertise often. Is that right, Jess? Yes. Now, look, I might not be able to fix a generator, but I am so good at filing <laughs> and my filing my filing expertise is also valued. It's also Absolutely. a valuable thing. And it's a really good way to, sh- way to show that you're an ally. You've not come in to say, listen to me, I know all. You've come in to say, i got something to learn – and I'll just sit here quietly in the corner, do your filing and listen to you while you learn. Is that kind of what you think, what you and do? There has to be change because it's not enough just to create more discourse. It's about real change and that includes the return of land. Absolutely. Yeah, that seems to be the fundamental guiding principle. We can all do the right things, but we have to think that we're in this country that has profited immeasurably from its Indigenous yeah. peoples. And it's, it's the sleeper in the room always, isn't it, that we, we can do these good things in a small scale, sometimes even in a medium scale, but there's a big problem to solve. Here we are in a policy forum. Could you speak to the policy you would like to see in regards to the land of Australia? There was recently in The Guardian an article about how in New South Wales there is a massive backlog of land claim, of land claims, right? Mm-hmm. Massive. From when was the when did when did the land rights legislation come in place in New South Wales? Was it eighty three? Oh, was it eighty three? Was that late? In eighty three, something like eighty five percent of the claims lodged since eighty three have not been processed. And if they were to continue to process the claims that they have for land rights just now, not not new ones into the system, if they were to process the outstanding ones that they currently have, it will take one hundred years. And in that time. Every single little bit of evidence mob have to prove connection to country gets smashed up and beaten up by the colonial economic system and we lose again, which is why I, 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 I do kind of mean just give me back my land, give, give us back our land. You've made your money out of it, you know, and, and where, there's big, when there's, where there has been big handbacks, think Uluru, Mm. they've just taken a 99-year lease anyway. But it's still there's still colonial priorities that dictate how Uluru is managed in that 99-year lease. So this actually brings us to transdisciplinary again, which is, you know, you have the environment department. So, for example, the National Environmental Science Program, is it NESP that has mm-hmm. that big grant yep. funding? NOAA. That's around environment and science. And it says it's transdisciplinary, but... It's about science and environment, so you couldn't have like a music. Well, no, and I know someone who's actively involved in that, and he does the chemistry stream. So how interdisciplinary is it if yeah. he's doing the chemistry stream? And so, and then the and then uh, Uluru falls under management through environmental programs again. So you're seeing how the the disciplinary structures in the academic system are translated into how our government departments are are arranged, how their funding programs are allocated. Um, there's no uh, 
cultural or social or political um, centered uh, funding for environmental issues, which are always cultural, social, political. Um, uh, Because there's this assumption that the environment is separate to society. And so this is how we see the way our knowledge practices have become so um, specialised in the universities and discreet undermines our capacity to respond to the environmental challenges of these times and, and to think to think in connection about what's important and and to be able to talk talk with each other and now um, I guess that's one of the things I really like about indigenous sciences is that it like I'm fairly familiar with a couple of them not just ones in Australia and it seems pretty clear to me the connection between society and environment that you say people don't see indigenous sciences do. In fact, Indigenous philosophies, do they not, see that deep connection between landscape, country and people. And that's one of the things that I think really defines the difference, is one of the, one of the defining differences between the way Indigenous science and Western modern industrial science operates is that over here in Indigenous science, we are fully cognizant that we are, in fact, connected to country, that, that the socioeconomic and political structures are what drives how we view environment, not separate environment. You know, this year we've been working with the School of Art and Design on what we're calling an Indigenous uh, Honours Creative Practice course to look at the fact that so many honours students in various disciplines who are Indigenous just naturally work across these boundaries and they're being squashed Mm -hmm. by the system they're in, even as they're trying to transcend it. And we thought we wanted to be able to, to host a course where people could really be themselves and they could say, I might be working in some aspect of policy or environmentalism or even in the law, but actually I also dance or I also sing or I also tell stories and there must be a place for that to come back into my practice. So I wanted to say that, you know, as someone who's, you know, trying to lead a music school, that the arts have a really crucial role to play. And I wanted to get both of your thoughts on how can we make this transition from sort of hard science, social science and the arts? How can we all work together? Well, what I think we really need to do is change the incentives in the yeah. system um, which are work against transdisciplinary research but we also need to teach the history and philosophy of science across yep. campus so that science is understood as another uh, western science is understood as another knowledge practice um, we this need is another branch of philosophy yeah we need all we need all scholars to understand their discipline, the the philosophies and norms and practices of their discipline in relation to other ways of knowing and being, um, if we are able to be able to talk to each other and have conversation rather than monologue. Um, we also really need to have champions from the sciences to stand up and and champion the humanities, the arts, yep. um, and qualitative research. Um, because as we've seen with climate change science, we know the science has told us, you know, it's happening, but we are unable to, our governments don't act on the climate science. What we need is social consensus um, to force the governments to act on climate science about what's important to but us. But the science isn't. We the sciences are not convincing large portions of the public, and I think that's partly because we are only using science lingo. Yes, we need to connect with what's happening and be able to express it and in a variety of ways and and understand it and imagine it. What might be coming next across a range of uh, knowledge forms and have that. Um, have that, have that suite of evidence, um, informing governments and society about climate change, not just, um, graphs that look terrifying. I, um, had the bizarre, totally unexpected privilege as a PhD science scholar to open a photography exhibit on the weekend. And it was an exhibit of water walks. Some mob had organized a bunch of water walks along stormwater channels in Canberra. And they wanted to get people to take photographs, to start looking at what they thought, photo access thought, were um, unloved and abandoned urban spaces. And then as they started getting into this, they realised that actually people really loved their stormwater drains. Um, but, but really the point is that 
photo access, set up this project specifically to get people to take photographs of stormwater drains. And on these walks, they took along a local historian and a water person so they could talk about the channels from a variety of perspectives and people loved it. And it allowed them to really um, start to understand why we have stormwater systems and maybe why we shouldn't have stormwater systems. Um, But at the exhibit the other day, to see the photographs out was actually really interesting to see what people prioritised and valued. Mm. Um, and they love the grasses. They love the the wet, the droplets of water. And But what I was saying to them as I was opening the exhibit was that these photos that you take are actually evidence from observational practices and observational practices widely regarded in, in science as like almost the gold standard. If you can see it, it must have happened. And certainly in Indigenous sciences, that's how everything was done, was largely on observational methodology. But you should have seen their faces when I said to them, these photos you're taking are evidence. I take a million photos for my fieldwork. It's evidence. What you're doing here is contributing to your understanding of these stormwater systems through your art. Like you're understanding them in a, in a more scientific way, but through your art practice. Mm, that's really interesting. And um, we've been talking a lot about Indigenous knowledge and transdisciplinarity, and then we've been talking about policies, but actually we also need to talk about Indigenous policies because Indigenous peoples are here with their own societies and political groups and their own territories and their own ways. Their own political and cultural structures, even though they've been smashed up by colonialism. You know, we were talking before about the diplomacy of acknowledging country. That's right. And, That's right. And um, you as a Wiradjuri woman, you know, negotiating. With my Nunawal colleagues, whether I can speak my my language on their country. Yep. There's so many diplomatic practices. And as you say, that's a policy choice, right? Yeah. These are things that, um, you know, that we saw over summer, the bushfires, um, and there was this immense sort of um, uh, wanting to learn from Indigenous people's iconic fire practices. And it, it feels like uh, that felt like an historic moment that, that this society, this Australian society is, is starting to get into a place where it's ready to listen and, to, and, ready, to, and ready to learn about... Um, about other ways of looking after um, living in and looking after the bush. I still have an edge of cynicism about this enthusiasm (laughs) in that I can't help but think that once whiteys have the knowledge that they want, and it will be specific bits of knowledge, right, it won't be taking the overall practice of how you go about building knowledge in Indigenous science, in Wiradjuri science or Ngunnawal science. It'll be about the specifics, the data, the data points. What time of the year do we have to start firing? What direction do we fire in? What temperature do we fire at? They're going to take that, but they're not going to take the stuff that sits above it that actually creates that. They're not going to take the headspace or the philosophy or the lifestyle practices. That's where the change is at. And that is exactly why you have to have transdisciplinary and And you need to start it at the universities. They go together. We have to train train the people and that's what you've both said so beautifully. We have to start earlier. I think they should run Indigenous subjects, Indigenous study subjects for Indigenous students because what they're doing at ANU mostly is running Indigenous subjects for non-Indigenous students so they can catch up with their history. So that non-Indigenous students can find out that there were stolen generations and that colonial is an ongoing project. Kate Howard and Jess Weir, what a great discussion we're having. I know there's, there's hardly any time left, really. But, Kate, I just wanted to ask you before we wrap, um, you know, we talked about what happens in the universities in sort of like a big capital U, N-I-S. What about this university? We're here on Ngunnawal land and we're here at the Australian National University. Could you give us a couple of takeaways that you think could really help this university right now? Yeah, look, I'll just, for this question, I'm going to focus specifically on undergraduate teaching. I have a little bit of experience teaching in the undergraduate Indigenous Studies degree. And from what I can see, the vast majority of the major of the Indigenous Studies degree is about bringing non-Indigenous people up to speed with Australia's colonial history. It's not an, it's not a subject or a, or a discipline that's being developed for Indigenous students to be able to explore and develop and have pride in their knowledge systems. So if you keep churning out 
Indigenous studies students who only look at things from a non-Indigenous perspective, we cannot solve the policy problems that we've talked about today because they're coming out thinking the same way. They're not being challenged in their thinking. They're not being forced to even walk for a day in an Indigenous person's headspace. You know what I mean? So if you can't get the undergraduate stuff right, how can you expect that the policy outcomes you get from high-level research like PhDs and master's programs to reflect a new and different reality? Kate, fantastic answer. I mean, thanks for doing that on the spot. So I'm going to wrap it now. I'm going to say such a big thank you to our two wonderful guests, Kate Harrod and Jess Weir. What a discussion. If you think about it in about 50 minutes or just above it, we've looked at what transdisciplinarity is to two really great researchers. We've looked at where the gaps are, how we can jump into the gaps, but we've looked at the the overarching structures that Indigenous thought and leadership can provide to our society. We've looked at the problems in the university system, how we can make them better. And we've looked at expanding the notion of what even policy is to say that there's a whole notion of Indigenous policy and Indigenous governance that is around and we should be engaging with it much more. We've been told to be careful that if we're not careful, we can just cherry pick all of this stuff and do it yet again. So even as we're trying to fix the problem, we can propagate the problem. So to both of you, Kate, Jess, thanks for an incredible discussion today. Mandangu, thank you. Thanks, Kim. Thanks, Kat. Thanks for joining us for this special episode of Policy Forum Pod. We'd love to hear what you thought of the discussion. Come on, reach out to us on Twitter at APPS Policy Forum or send an email podcast at policyforum.net or even better, you could join the pod squad. You can find us on Facebook under Policy Forum Pod. This is your direct line to the members of the Policy Forum Pod team. And they're pretty cool. We've got Martin, we've got Yulia and a host of other great people, other listeners, even some panelists. You get early access to Ask Policy Forum series, the podcast where you ask all the questions you want. You'll be welcomed. But before you go, a quick reminder to subscribe to Policy Forum Pod on Acast, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you usually get your podcasts from. And if you enjoyed today's episode, maybe you'd like to leave a review. We always love hearing from you, and it's a big help in us getting the word out about this podcast. Finally, an exciting public service announcement for you. Over the next six weeks, Policy Forum Pod will be taking a close look at poverty through our special Making the Invisible Visible mini-series. The host, Arti Betigeri, is joined by Crawford School researchers from the Individual Measure of Multidimensional Poverty, IMMP project, a gender-sensitive measure of multidimensional poverty that has revealed incisive and in-depth information about patterns of poverty. The IMMP doesn't just assess how many people are poor, but rather how they experience poverty. And doesn't that sound like today's podcast? So throughout the series, we will break down the figures, get behind the data, see how it can help policymakers better direct resources in this most critical of global challenges. Have we piqued your interest? New episodes every Tuesday through Policy Forum Pod Feed. So hit subscribe now so you don't miss out. We'll be back with another episode of Policy Forum Pod next week. Bye.